So good morning to you all, and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you at some point in your life have made plans for something? Maybe you'd even been planning a long time for something, and then at the last moment, something else came up, and your long-laid plans were derailed. Happened to anybody in here? A lot of hands going up, right? This happened for a lot of people, especially during COVID, didn't it? Long-planned vacations were canceled. Weddings were canceled or postponed. Family gatherings were canceled. As a church, we were told we couldn't meet together for worship in person for a number of weeks. I was looking back at the records. There were actually five Sundays where we couldn't meet together, where we were told it was too dangerous for us to meet together in person for worship. And Sunday worship is something really that should be on all of our regular schedules. Other things can happen in our lives or the lives of our loved ones that might cause our plans to be canceled as well. That other dreaded C word, not COVID, but cancer, has sprung up in people's lives and has caused them to reconsider what they should and shouldn't be doing or where they should and shouldn't be going. There are things in this world that are simply beyond our ability to control. And James will address this issue in the next section of his letter. By the way, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, so we'll be taking a break from the book of James until after the new year as we look at the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ moving forward. In our passage for this morning, James will discuss four things. The foolishness of ignoring God's will. The arrogance of denying God's will. The sin of disobeying God's will and then the blessing of following God's will. I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, and I would ask you to please stand with me as you're able, in honor of reading God's word. This morning I'll just be reading from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 800, <coughs> excuse me, in 56. Beginning at verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Lord, once again, these are your words inspired by your Holy Spirit, spoken to your Apostle James, who wrote them to these Jews scattered back then, Lord, but also to us today. This is your Holy Word. So, Lord, open it up to us. May your Holy Spirit guide our time here together in your Word, Lord. And as always, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> James begins here this morning by revealing to his listeners the foolishness of ignoring God's will. He says, now listen, you who say, 
Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on our business, and make money. He says, why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. Some other translations use the words, come now, while the NIV has, now listen. This come now is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew in Isaiah 1.18, where Isaiah says, um, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. It's an address that's meant to get the listener's attention. He's saying, come now, listen up. What I have to say next is really important. And he begins to tell them of the foolishness of ignoring the will of God. Picture, if you will, a group of merchants. And they're meeting together, maybe they're sitting together, even even looking at a map. And they've decided that they're going to travel together. They're going to go to certain cities, they're going to set up their tents, and they're going to sell their wares. They got it all planned out, where they're going to go, when they're going to leave, how much time they're going to stay there, even how much money they think they're going to make. And James here is not speaking against making plans and being organized. There's a lot of good that comes out of being organized. What he's speaking against here is making all of these plans and then leaving the Lord out of all of it. They're making all of these plans, but they're not bringing these plans before the Lord. In fact, they're going about all of this as if the Lord doesn't even exist. I see a parallel from this passage in Jesus' words in Matthew 24, where he's talking to the people about the end of time and the day of his return. And he compared his generation then to the generation of Noah. And he said this, he said, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. No one faults a person for eating or for drinking or even getting married. The point is that in the lives of these people of Noah's day, there was no place for God. These people lived as if God didn't even exist. And that James is saying this is also true of the merchants that he is addressing here. And I want us to notice that James isn't speaking against the occupation of being a merchant, right? He's not writing about the ethics of buying and selling. James is speaking to them concerning their total disregard for God in their plans. To them, money seems much more important than including the Lord in their work. And this situation would have been familiar to many in James' audience. Many Jewish people back then were successful businessmen. And part of what they did was to travel from city to city, especially along those major trade routes of the day. And it took wise planning and having a business strategy to be successful. So the problem that James is addressing is that in their extensive planning and making these business strategies, they've totally ignored the Lord. He just wasn't part of their agenda. Just like Satan's five I wills, you remember that from last week from Isaiah 14? Just like those, the statement of these businessmen contains five presumptions. First, they choose their own time. 
Today or tomorrow, we'll, we'll do this. Second, they choose their own location for doing their business. We'll go to such and such a city. Third, they choose their own duration, they'll be gone, and they decide to spend a year there. Fourth, they choose their own enterprise to, to do business, right? To trade, to engage. And finally, they choose their own goal or objective, and that is to make money, hopefully to make a profit. And James is not attacking their motive here of making a profit. In fact, if you're in business and you're not making a profit, you're probably not going to be in business for very long. James is speaking to them about their exclusion of God in everything that they're doing. I'm also reminded of James' words from Luke chapter 12, where he told the parable about a man whose land produced just this overabundance of crops. So the man decided, he said, I'm going to tear down my old barns, and I'm going to build these huge, large, new, expensive barns to store all of my grain. And then this man said to himself, oh, you've got ample goods laid up for many years. It's time to just relax and eat and drink and be merry. But Jesus said, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Who then will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus said that this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. That very night, that rich man's life would be demanded of him. Isn't this exactly what James says next? He says, what is your life? You're simply a mist that's here for a little while and then vanishes. <coughs> David wrote something very similar in Psalm 103. In verses 15 and 16 of Psalm 103, David wrote these words. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. But then the wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. James is teaching his listeners that God is the one who sustains our lives. That each day's 24-hour period is not ours automatically to do with what we want just for us. But that God is the one who controls time. And he gives it to us as one of his good gifts to us. And James wants us to see that, that we would be already blown away by, by the wind of God's judgment were it not for his wonderful mercy and his grace. The biblical worldview is that we receive another day, not by natural necessity, not by mechanical law, not by right, not by nature, but only by the mercies of God. So James has addressed the foolishness of ignoring God's will. Next, he'll address the arrogance of denying God's will. We're going to skip ahead to verse 16 here, but we'll come back to verse 15 at the end. In verse 16, James says, As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. The first people James addressed were those who simply ignored the will of God. But there are others who may acknowledge that God exists, and, and that he even maybe has a will for them, but they arrogantly reject it or deny it. Those in the first group are, are living like atheists, aren't they? Living as if God doesn't even exist. 
Those in the second group are what theologians call self-theists. It means they refuse to submit all of the uncertainties of life to God. And instead, they set themselves and their own goals and their own wills and all their own plans over and above God. Although they may acknowledge God's will, it's simply not as important to them as their own plans. And James says that those who deny the will of God boast in their arrogance. The word for boasting that's used here literally means to be loud-mouthed or to speak loudly. And it's interesting that this same word is used throughout the scripture and it has both positive and negative uses. This word is used sometimes to refer to rejoicing in the Lord, to loudly proclaiming the glory of God. That's the positive use. But it's also used in the negative way when it speaks of loudly touting your own accomplishments, kind of tooting your own horn, right? And the context here demands that we see it in the negative sense. The word for arrogance comes from a root word that means to, to wander about, not really knowing where you're going. It was used sometimes to describe charlatans who traveled around to different places selling phony goods. Taken together, these two words picture someone bragging, boasting about something that he doesn't have and that he can't obtain. And James says that this is the arrogance of those who deny the will of God. We see this arrogant denial of the will of God back in Isaiah chapter 47, where it talks about the downfall of Babylon. In this passage, we see the defiant words of Babylon, thinking that she is above all. Listen to these words. The prophet said, you said, talking about Babylon, that Babylon said, I will continue forever, the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then listen, you wanton creature, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. She says, I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. But the prophet says, both of these, will overtake you in a moment. On a single day, loss of children and widowhood, they will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and you've said, no one sees me. No one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. That's what Babylon was saying about herself. I am and there is none besides me. There's only one who has the right to say that about themselves. And he is the one who called himself, I am. The great I am. The Lord can say, I am and there is none besides me. And he is the only one who can say that truthfully. Kind of, re <clears throat> excuse me. Kind of reminds me again of the pride of Satan that we spoke about last week. And James warns us that such empty, arrogant boasting in and of ourselves, he says it's evil. And I think I've shared this with you before, but I want you to listen to the words from William Henley's poem that's titled Invictus. It shows this arrogant boasting that James is talking about. L listen to this. He said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank 
whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem clearly reflects the attitude of those who may know that God exists, but who arrogantly defy him. So we've seen the foolishness of ignoring God's will, the arrogance of denying God's will, and now James will talk to us about the sin of disobeying God's will. Verse 17 says that anyone who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. In this verse, we see James' focus shift from whether we know God's will and even acknowledge God's will to whether or not we actually do God's will. And really, if you look at this letter, this is the emphasis throughout the entire letter that James wrote. He wants to show how important it is for our actions to match the faith that we profess we have. In this one verse, James summarizes much of what he has already taught in his letter. This harkens back to James' words from chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where he said that if a brother or sister comes to you and they're without daily food or clothes and you just send them away with a blessing but do nothing to help meet their needs, he says, what good have you done? What good is that kind of faith if it's not expressed in your deeds? Those in this third group, James says, are those who know what God's will is, actually agree that God's will might even be right, but then they simply refuse to obey it. In the context of this letter, James is saying that doing the right thing often means caring for those who are in need. In chapter 1, verse 27, he had talked about religion, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then we were just reminded uh, from chapter 2 that we're not only to see the need, but help meet the need. I think James might be warning here, yes, against making plans for tomorrow, not only without considering God's will, but also first without showing concern for others. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says this, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you now have it with you. None of us knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So we should do all the good we can today while we still have today. James says it's a sin to know the good we ought to do and then not do it. This is what's known as a sin of omission. Most of the time when we think of sin, we think of things that we've done or things that we think of. Those would be sins of, of commission, right? We commit the sin, whether it's lying or stealing or, or adultery or any number of things. When we do them, those are sins of commission. 
But James is telling us here that there are sins of omission as well. These are things we know we should be doing in the love and grace of God, but we simply choose not to. In these sins of omission, we are deliberately refusing to obey the will of God. And I believe the wayward prophet Jonah gives us a classic example of knowing what the will of God is and then choosing to disobey it. If you remember the story, Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance there. It was very clear that this was God's will for Jonah. This was the good that he had been called to do. But Jonah didn't want to go, did he? He didn't want the people there to have the opportunity to turn from their sin and be saved. In fact, we find out toward the end of the book that Jonah says he knew. He knew that God was a gracious God, that God was slow to anger and abounding in love, that God was a God who relents from sending calamity. And he says he knew that if he went and the people listened to his message, they would turn from their sins and be saved. But instead of doing the good that he was called to do, instead of willingly submitting to and following the will of God, he chose his own way, and he disobeyed the will of God. But what did we find out in the book of Jonah? We found out that God's will was still accomplished, wasn't it? Yes, God had to get his prophet's attention, and he did it in a pretty amazing way. And Jonah did recognize his sin and turned back to the Lord. And then the Lord gave him a second chance to follow his will. So what do we see there? We see that there is forgiveness and there is grace through confession and repentance. What's the verse we read every, every time we come to the Lord's table together? If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we know the good we ought to do and choose not to do it, James says, we've sinned. But just like all of our other sins, there is love and there is grace to cover it through the blood of Christ shed on the cross for each one of us. His blood covers over a multitude of sins, both sins of commission and sins of omission. So we've seen that James addressed the foolishness of ignoring God's will, the arrogance of denying God's will, and the sin of disobeying God's will. And now we'll close this morning with the blessing, the blessing of acknowledging and following God's will. This takes us back to verse 15 that we skipped, or skipped over earlier. Verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Remember, James began by speaking to a bunch of people who were making all kinds of plans without considering or even acknowledging the will of God. James is telling them, and I think he's telling us, that what we should be saying is, yeah, I'll go to such and such a city, I'll spend some time there selling my wares, if it is the Lord's will for me to do so. And if the Lord wills something different for me, then I will follow him wherever and whenever he leads. The verb tense in this verse, when James says we ought to say, it's in the present infinitive form of the verb. This means that it is habitual and is to be continual. In every aspect of our lives and in every decision we face, our response to the Lord is, if it's your will, 
I will do it. Simply put, the will of God is to be central in our lives. The early Puritans filled their speech and their correspondence with the Latin equivalent of this. They would say or write the words Deo Volente at the end of their correspondence. Deo Volente simply means God willing. The early Methodist church followed along with this practice. They regularly signed their letters with the initials DV at the bottom. And every time they would post a placard or send out a circular about some coming event, it would always have that DV at the bottom. What they were saying was, yeah, we're planning this event at this time and at this place, but only if the Lord wills it to happen. Deo volente. And we'd love to see you come and join us, again, if it's the Lord's will. Deo volente. Surprisingly, this phrase doesn't appear at all in the Old Testament. But we see it many times in the New Testament writings. When Paul left Ephesus, he said to the people there, I'll come back to you if it's God's will. He told the Corinthians, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. He promised them that he would spend more time with them if the Lord permits. There are other places as well where we see the same language being used. Probably the best known use of this is found when Jesus was praying in the garden on the night before his crucifixion. He knew what was awaiting him the next day. He knew the pain and the agony that he would have to go through. So he prayed three times that night that his father might take this cup of suffering away from him. Jesus, the man, we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus, the man, didn't want to have to suffer the pain and the agony he knew was coming. I mean, honestly, who would? Who would want to go through that? But what did he pray? He prayed, but not my will, but your will be done. And the blessing for us in Jesus following the will of his Father is that we now have forgiveness and salvation through faith in Christ, because Jesus surrendered himself to his Father's will. He didn't ignore God's will. He didn't deny God's will. He didn't disobey God's will. He said, just as James teaches us to say here, if it is your will for me, then I will do it. This is the blessing of following the will of God and not ignoring, denying, or disobeying it. We might think we know what's best for us. We might have things that we would like to do, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Just submit those things to the Lord and commit yourself to following his will. And then move on, trusting that he will guide you when and where he wants you to go. A little over nine years ago, Sharon and I were praying about what the Lord's will might be for us and for this church. We were back in Lakewood, Colorado. We had been called by the church to come. We didn't want to come if it wasn't the Lord's will for us to come. So we committed this decision to him, and instead of asking him time and time again for signs that we should come, which was what we'd been doing for months, kind of like Gideon, right? I want a sign, Lord. Give me a sign. Well, we changed that, and we started asking the Lord to just close the door if it wasn't his will for us to come. 
Well, that door never closed. We wanted to follow the will of God for us and for this church. We prayed, we trusted, we committed ourselves to his will. And here we are, nine years later, still following his will for us. There is blessing in surrendering yourself to the will of God. There can be heartache in ignoring, denying, or outright disobeying God's will. So my prayer for each and every one of you today is that you are walking in and following the will of God for your life each and every day because you will find blessing by walking in his will. Please pray with me. Lord, there is much uncertainty in life. We all make decisions each and every day that, that we need to commit to you. And Lord, to trust you, that you will lead and guide us in the way in which we should go. We know that you always want what is best for us. You never want something that's going to harm us. <coughs> so Lord, help us each and every day to not deny your will, to not ignore your will, Lord, but to surrender ourselves to your will and to follow you wherever you may lead us to go. You are the only one who is worth following. You are the only one who always wants what is best for us. You are the one true God. Help us, Lord, to surrender ourselves to your will each and every day and follow you. Lord, it's not easy. We all have our own ways, our own wills. So help us, Lord, to surrender to you always and follow you, trusting that you will lead us where you want us to go. Thank you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.